0: One Hope Church. All right, so let's begin. um, Read the first ten verses of Luke, Chapter Seven. It says, Now when He, that's Jesus, when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one from whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant, well, who had been sick. Now, I've got a question that may seem like, well, why are you asking this question? But I've got a question this morning that says, why does Luke include this story? Why is it here? John, when he wrote his gospel, wrote in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says, you know, Jesus did so many things, he actually says he did so many things that, you know, the, the papers of the world really could contain all that Jesus did and that he accomplished. So why is this here? There's a reason for it, and, you know, many times the way our Bibles that are are, are organized, we end up missing some of those, you know, why is this here questions, you know, because we have these Chapter and verse divisions that are very helpful in order for us to be all on the same page. Because this morning I'd say, hey, let's all turn to Luke chapter seven. And everybody goes, okay, we'll find that. Luke chapter seven, verse one. And we can all start at the same spot. If I suppose I said, you know, find in your Bible, you know, Luke's writings where he's gonna be talking, um, you know, and, and discussing things about a centurion and a centurion sick servant and you didn't have any other way to reference it other than that, you know, there would be probably a lot of, okay, you know, it's going to take a while for everybody to get there. So they're helpful for us, but sometimes it's that harsh break between chapters creates this sort of disconnect where we end up missing how the end of chapter 6 is connected to the beginning of chapter 7. And in this case, I think we really see this because at the end of chapter 6, You know, Jesus has been preaching, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, a stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. But he says here, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And so there's this piece where Luke has been writing much of what he's written up to this point for the purpose of establishing the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus at this point is tremendous in this, in this book. It's huge as a theme, the authority of Jesus. Of Jesus. And then Luke is going to use this Gentile, meaning non Jewish, person. Now, again, remember, Jesus, the disciples, all Jewish. But he's going to use this Gentile person to illustrate what it looks like to believe in the authority of Jesus, the authority and power that Jesus has. And so it's significant. It's also significant because moving forward, we're going to have, you know, we've only had a little bit of interaction with those who are not, you know, Jewish. And here, moving forward, there are going to be some more of these. And so this is, you know, kind of a a shift here. We're going to have some more of these encounters that establish that Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish nation, but for all nations, for all the people groups. So that's also going to be a significant theme as we go forward. But here, what we really want to focus on is this piece of of Jesus having authority. So as is stated here, Jesus had finished preaching. You have a a centurion who had, had a servant, a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's in charge of 100 other soldiers. So he's a man who... You know, has authority. He he doesn't just have those hundred other soldiers. Obviously, he's he's also in a position where he has, you know, servants in his house. Um, He has these, you know, basically employees that are part of his um, immediate community that work for him. And he has an, an interesting reputation because it's a different reputation and it's a different context than most of the Romans would have had. Most of the Roman soldiers would have used their authority and their power in abusive ways and that's why Jesus you know, said things like, hey, when, you know, when someone makes you carry um, you know, their bag one mile, go a second mile. Because a Roman soldier had the authority at any point to walk up to you and hand you his load and say, you've got to carry this for me one mile. He couldn't ask you under the law to do any more than that. But he could make you stop whatever you were doing. He could make you stop your work or your, you know, what you had on your schedule for the day, and to make you take that time to do that, to make you walk a mile. And so Jesus says, if it makes you walk a mile, go a second mile. You know, that's how you're going to show this, this contrast of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that you're going to go that extra mile for those who oppress you. That's powerful. But this centurion has set himself out as being different and having a, a different perspective. You can see he's, he's been attracted to Yahweh and to you know the Jewish people because of that. And he wants to do good for these people whom he has responsibility, he has authority over, really. He has a lot of authority. And yet, he uses that authority in a appropriate way, in a good way. It says he actually he builds, you know, a synagogue, you know, which would, um, you know, in, in our terms, it would be like, hey, he built a local, you know, a, a building for a local church to meet in, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, if it was in our context today, um, among Christian people, in a Christian culture context, so he builds this synagogue. And he's got a good reputation, even the Jewish leaders like him. And so they go to Jesus because they cannot deny, at least some of them, cannot deny the authority and power that Jesus has. And so they say, this man has been good to us, for he loves our nation, has built us a synagogue. Hey, you know, it's like, can, can, you, can you help him out? You know, he's got this sick servant, can you help him out? You know, I, I do think it also is a note there that, um, that shows you the, the heart that this centurion had that's being worked on by God. It's being changed as he has compassion for his servant. He didn't look at it like, you know, well, I can just, which he could, I can just go get another servant. He didn't view that human being as just a dis- disposable, but as valuable. And so you can see that's a that's a sign of you know somebody's heart is being worked on and, and open, especially in his culture that is so very harsh and looks at those who have been dominated. You know, the Romans you know, viewed those who they dominated as disposable goods. And so he doesn't view this man as a disposable good, but as a human being. And it's valuable. And he wants his him to be made. Well, and so it says when he's, Jesus is far from the, not too far from the house, the centurion sent his friend saying, "Wait." And this has an understanding. The centurion knows a bit about Jesus and who he is, and the authority and power that he has. Even though he, he may not have the full understanding yet of Jesus as Savior and Savior of the world, he does get that Jesus has authority from God and can make somebody sick or well. He has at least that much understanding. And so he says, don't trouble yourself. Listen to this, for I am not worthy that you should enter in under my roof. I'm not worthy. It's all truth. That's truth. You know, he doesn't understand that Jesus would be happy to be under his roof. Maybe he doesn't quite get that part of it. But he under, does understand rightly that he's not worthy that Jesus would be under his roof. And this is the thing about Jesus that's so awesome for each one of us in our lives is I'm not worthy for Jesus, period. Yet Jesus once desires communion, fellowship with me. And the same thing is true in your life. You're not worthy that Jesus would sit down with you because nobody is he's again so far above, yet he's humbled himself and he desires to and he even loves to that's amazing that's powerful Jesus Jesus Christ really as the scripture tells us he's the one that through whom the you know Christ is the one through whom the everything and the universe was made and who it was made for. He really holds everything together. I mean, that's, that's what I think we need to understand, even on a, like an atomic level, that without Jesus, if Jesus ceased to, uh, without Christ, if he ceases to be, I mean, the universe itself would just implode upon itself and become nothing. Who holds it all together ultimately is Christ. He's the key, basic, like, atomic reason for everything. And yet, he, was, he is willing to meet you your, where you are. He's willing to meet us in our unworthiness and then not leave us as we are, but to change us to make us well. But notice what he says here. I do not think myself, verse 7, I did not think myself even worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. So, you know, he understands who he is. He understands that there's, there are officers above him. There's officers below him. And the ones that are below him, he can say, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, check this out in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him. I mean, this is a big enough deal that Jesus basically stops what he's doing. He stops and he just turns to the crowd is like, this is a teaching moment. And he turns to them and says, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. And that's kind of a slap in the face there because they're supposed to be the people of faith. They're the people, supposed to be people who have faith in Yahweh. And then Jesus says, this Gentile, this Roman has more faith than any of you do. Woo! Powerful. It kind of sets them, you know, in their place. Jesus marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, this is where it gets, I think, a little bit sticky for us. Because we are the ones, we are ones, like it says in chapter 6, verse 46, we're the ones who say, Lord, Lord. Now, the centurion lives it out in his daily life of, you know, somebody tells, that has authority over him tells him to do something, he does it. People under him have authority, he has authority to tell them to do something, they do it. Why do they do it? Well, because he's the one with authority and he's said to. Is it amazing that because of his position, this centurion man, this centurion, you know, Roman soldier, often received greater respect from those under him than Jesus received from receives from his disciples. So Roman centurion is just a man, and yes, there would be consequences for not doing what he said. But we need to understand the position that Jesus has as Savior, as Lord, as King of the universe. Many times, you know, he tells us to do something and we like, want to try to negotiate. We don't oftentimes view it as he's actually Lord with authority over us to say, listen, I'm telling you to go and to do this. Now do it. We, you know, Lord tells us go and to do this and a lot of times our response to that is, okay, Jesus, let's make a deal where I do this instead. That's pretty bold. It's also pretty arrogant. It's also pretty wrong. Guilty as charged. Because I'm not going to sit here and say, "Well, this is something y'all do." But I, I you know, Jesus, whatever Jesus tells me to do, I, you know, I, I obey the first time, every time. That's what we tell our kids, right? We need you to, we want you to obey. First time, every time, with joy. And we want you to do it happily, right? This is what we tell our children. We want you to obey. We want you to do it the first time. We want you to do it every time. We want you to do it so with joy. That's our expectation. Why? Because we're the parents. As a parent, we have the authority over our children, right? I mean, at least that's the way, it, in theory, it's supposed to work. The theory is the way it's supposed to work. We have the authority, right? And so we expect our children to do what we say. Who are we in relation to Jesus? Because many times there, we act as if it was a, you know, just a friend who asks us to do something. And so with that friend, I can go, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I will do this. And that's the problem when we have the jesus being our friend and yes you know he, i i'll concede with you that he is but when we have that picture of jesus to such a high degree that we've lost his lordship his kingship his authority his power in our lives to where we become like little children complaining when he asks us to do something in service to him. That's what we become like. I don't know about other people's kids, but my kids are already, I mean, they become great negotiators very early on. And great debaters, and they have great reasons. It's amazing the reasons a five-year-old can come up with of why that's not the best thing right now. But we went, sometimes we get so frustrated with them. But the reality is a lot of times with God, we're better at it than our kids are. We're better at delaying. We're better at trying to negotiate our way out. We're better of where we got a reason why our plan is better than God. How different would our lives look if we learned to more consistently and with joy when God instructs us, either through his word or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or for them, the instruction of one of his people, that we just learn to say, Yes, Lord, with joy, right away, Lord. I'm on it. I'm on it. How much different and how much better our lives could be. <coughs> and it's and it's this that we're really getting at. And you know, even as, as Michael's been doing our um, each week, uh, these things about you know our, our mission and our, our goals and our values, our strategies, our, you know, all of these things ultimately working to what he's gonna bring today on our our vision of saying yes to Jesus at any cost. That's what this all comes down to. It comes back to where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Because what we're acknowledging is, is that Jesus rightfully expects our yes. And that Jesus is the one who actually has the authority to say to go And to go, and that we would go, and to come, and that we come, and to do this, and that we do exactly that. That's what we're acknowledging. And we're also acknowledging that many times in our lives, we're not there yet, but that's the preferred future. That's where we want to be. That's where we're asking God to help take us. Because, in my, just in my flesh, there's, there's little odds of that. Just on my own strength, apart from God, there's little odds that I'm going to say yes to him and all that he asks. Because what our flesh will often do, our flesh will calculate and go, not worth it. Let me have another option. Our flesh will calculate the cost and go, not worth it. I don't see the value added here. What's the next thing? What's the other thing? But as we move forward, what I want us to see is that Jesus has authority, and he uses his authority appropriately, and we can trust him to use it appropriately because of his great love and compassion. So let's all move on to verse 11. It said, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You can see the scene in your mind. As he goes to this city called Nain, the disciples are with him, a large crowd. They get near the gate, and a dead man was being carried out of the city you know taking him basically you know to the to the cemetery which you you would have had outside the city walls and he was the only son of a mother and she was a widow so this is tragic on a lot of different levels because you know the the order have of death death is always problematic and sad right but especially so when the order of death is is um, changed. When a, a child dies before mother or father, that's especially tragic. Even if it's an, you know, it seems here an, an older guy. Um, and especially because, you know, every everything in terms of care, the, the first priority would be family. So if you didn't have children to take care of you in your old age, then, you know, you're dependent on others and that may or may not go very well for you. It could be a, a destitute sort of life. So there's a lot of reason for sadness with that. And it was her only son, and you can imagine, the, you know she's already experienced a lot of loss in her life. She's already lost her husband. And now to lose her only son, you, know, you, can, you can think of her heart and how grieved she would be And so it says in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Really, the 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 the, I think the Greek is is stronger there with that compassion. It's like he's deeply moved at the seat of his emotions, like his the inner depth of his emotions. He is moved. And so having the authority that he has, he goes up and he touches a coffin, and those who carried the coffin stood still. Again, we see here the authority of Jesus. Jesus can walk into a scene that he's not been invited to, that he has no connection to the people that are present in what we would consider the connection in terms of human relations, and he can just walk up and stop a funeral procession Put his, his hand on the coffin. That's authority. That's power. Because if you don't have that authority and that power, that respect, somebody just average dude going up and trying to stop somebody's funeral. I mean, those people, the friends and everything, their family, they're going to go off on that guy. They're going to take that dude out. You know, you you see it here. The authority that Jesus has. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead, sat up and began to speak. And Jesus presented him to his mother. You see that scene in your mind? I mean, that is powerful, it's beautiful. Naturally so, fear came upon all, and they glorified God as saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. This is what I want to contend with us this morning, is that because of the compassion of Jesus, we are right to trust his authority over our lives. You know, Jesus isn't just you know like a worldly dictator who gives orders and who does things you know without consideration of the people who he's giving the orders to he's not a heartless dictator that sends his people into to battle saying yeah i mean a lot of you are going to make it but i'm going to be just fine you know and, and to use one's authority in that way Jesus actually cares about us. He loves us. And so whatever mission he sends us on, he doesn't send us on that mission without consideration of, of us, of who we are and, and, and what we are and what the cost is going to be for us. Do you trust him? Really, that's so much of what this comes down to because that centurion who says, you don't have to come here because I know you just say the word and he's going to be made better. He's got that trust in Jesus. He's got that great faith in Jesus. That Jesus can, that Jesus doesn't have to, that Jesus isn't obligated to, that Jesus might have reasons not to, that Jesus may say no, and sometimes he does, and yet you can still trust him and trust his authority. So, if there's a price to pay, understand a couple of things. One, our Savior has led by example. He's never asked any of his followers to make a greater sacrifice than he's made. Do we get that? He's never asked anybody to make a greater sacrifice than what he's made. He's never asked his disciples to do anything that he was unwilling to do himself. In this way, he's the ultimate leader. And we can also trust him. He knows what it is to pay a price. He has compassion on us. And so we can trust him that his authority is good, and that he sees from an eternal perspective what we cannot see. So from our perspectives, many times we see a follower of Jesus pay a great price, and we see it from just a human, earthly perspective, and we acknowledge it is a great price, but we are not able to see beyond that to everything that God sees in it. And so sometimes we can question, was it worth it? We think about that with those who pay the ultimate price of sharing the gospel and lose their lives for it. But I guarantee us this morning that if we entered into their presence, anyone who died for the name of Jesus because of sharing the gospel with others, and you said, was the price worth it? What would their response be to us? I think my response would be, are you kidding me? Of course it was worth it. Of course it was worth it. But on this side, and from where we sit now, in our frailty, in our weakness, in our fears, we question, and we want to put limits on what we would say yes to if Jesus asked us. And I think it's important that we talk about this, even as it relates to this, because in our world and today, we, our world is dangerous. Sometimes that becomes abundantly obvious to us. You know, we want to we be taught, we want to believe, we want to think, you know, well, there are safe places here and these other places aren't safe and as long as you're in a, this place, you're okay and, you know, you've got this insurance and that thing and you've got all these safety nets and, man, crazy stuff can happen in very unexpected places. So much of it's, you know, don't buy into this illusion. And don't live in fear. So you don't have to believe, you don't have to buy into the illusion that that makes you want to feel safer than you actually are. And you don't want to live in fear that you're walking around all the time going, this could be the day something really, really terrible happens to me or my family or whatever. Neither of those are good ways to live. Both of those have a cost to them. Those aren't great ways to live. And there are times where, you know, we can come about and, and we, can, we can begin to doubt. We can begin to doubt even Jesus Luke 7, 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, why is John the Baptist sending his, you know, two of his disciples? To ask this question, why is he sending to ask this question? Didn't John baptize Jesus in the Jordan River and see the dove ascending and descending on him and you know, hear the voice? This is my beloved one, and I'm well pleased. Didn't he, didn't he get all of that there? We see John was preparing you know, for the coming Messiah. And he's also expecting the kingdom of God to come and to be present. And at this point, he's in prison. Herod has thrown him into prison because he was outspoken about Herod's you know, sin and taking his brother Philip's wife to be his own. And John the Baptist called him on it and said, "That's sin. That's evil." And for it, he's in jail. And perhaps his expectation with the coming kingdom of God and with, the, you, know, when the, you know, with the Messiah coming, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to do away with all this injustice and set up his kingdom. And why is he still in? Why is he in prison right now? Because this isn't hasn't it gone exactly like he thought it would? You know, I think this happens to people you know, when we come to Jesus, and you know, because of certain messages or certain, a certain message that's been preached associated with Jesus, they expect a much easier life. And, and they expect a, a life that doesn't have a lot of pain and you know, a, a, a life that has more material abundance to it. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, they go, "Wait, is Jesus real?" Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Savior? Because things aren't going according to the plan that I thought when I started following him, what I would receive from it. So Jesus reassures John. How does he do it? Verse 21. In that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now that may sound familiar, Because earlier in Luke we had Jesus in the temple at Nazareth quoting from the prophet Isaiah these very things about the the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the captives being set free from their oppression. And so he tells him, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It's like, hold your faith, John. Hold your faith. And when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But who did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. But I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's stop there for a minute. Because he uses this opportunity to highlight what John has done and the sacrifice that John made. Jesus is not ignorant of the cost that John has paid he understands it full well. That being the messenger, being the one to go before him to prepare the way, was, there's was a price for that. And so he reminds the people about the ministry that John had, even though it was a short ministry. This man out in the wilderness, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see the reeds? you know, this the grass, you know, blowing in the wind? You didn't go out in the desert for that? What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a, someone who was living a life of luxury? You didn't go out to the desert to see that. Remember John wore you know, camel hair and ate locust and honey. You know, it's pretty out there. Pretty harsh life. He's living out there in that desert. What did you go out to see? A prophet. More than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? Because you know the, the the prophets told that the Messiah would come in the future, and Jesus is the one I mean, sorry, John's the one who comes right before Jesus. He's the immediate one before, where Jesus is also coming onto the scene. Behold, I will send my messenger. He's that special messenger talked about in Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So he talks about John being the greatest prophet, but then he says, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you know, that's greater than, you know, how John is right now in his unglorified state. Make sure you become part of the kingdom. Verse 29 When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. So this is an interesting thing about the ministry that John had, is that even people who You know, the the notorious sinners, those who knew they were sinners, those who weren't trying to hide the fact that they were sinners, came to repent. But those who were religious and tried to hold on to their own goodness, to their own show of goodness, what does it say about them? The Pharisees and lawyers, the Pharisees and the scribes, they rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized by John. They rejected it. Same thing happens today as the gospel is you know, preached, the good news of Jesus, of salvation through him. There are people who say, you know, I hear what you're saying, not for me. And they'll come up with these excuses. Verse 31, and the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance, and we mourned to you, and you did not weep. They're saying like, you know, you play a little kid's game. You know, if you ever have a kid, like, you know, just like pretend. You know, they're going to come up and they want the attention. And so they start playing their instrument or whatever. And if you just kind of sit there, they're going to be a little bit unhappy that you didn't get up and dance and participate with them. Or if they played a crying game and you didn't cry with them, well, why didn't you play a crying game with them? And this is what he means by it in verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. What he's saying is, you know, God sent John the Baptist, and there were a lot of people who said, now that dude's just got to be crazy, or he's got to be demon-possessed. I'm not listening to that message. And then Jesus comes, not with a different message, but with a different tactic, and he's there in the homes of people like Matthew, you know, a tax collector, and with all his you know, sinful friends. And people say, well, I'm not going with that because Jesus is just, you know, he, he, he likes sinners too much and we're, we're righteous good people. But what are those really? Those are just excuses. Those are just excuses because whether the person comes one way or another, they're going to be rejected. And this is what you need to understand, and this is a call for us here as followers of Jesus. We have to be true to who we are in Christ and to what God has asked us to do individually and collectively as a church, understanding that there are going to some people who are just going to reject because they just want to reject, and it wouldn't matter how you presented the message. It would be irrelevant, it's irrelevant to a certain segment of the population because whether you are viewed as conservative followers of Jesus or liberal followers of Jesus or whether you're conser- concerned with any of that, no matter how they view you, they'll reject you for one or the other. Because what happens a lot of times is people are, are moving and adjusting and trying to change to be, you know, how do I, how do I make sure I'm accepted by those that I'm trying to reach, and that's really, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a place for that question. But it's more important to say, who has God called me to be and how He's he called me to do things? Because if God calls you to be like John the Baptist, you need to be like John the Baptist. And if God calls you to imitate as Jesus did, but well, I think it's probably for the majority of us, we need to do that. You're never going to go wrong by you know, doing it how Jesus did it. Okay, that's pretty safe. But there are times where God's going to call somebody to something a little bit more extreme in their approach. Well, the key is to be who Jesus has called us to be, not just trying to be something for the sake of of acceptance by others. And in reality, what we're attempting to do in all of it, especially as in in our day and our time, and having all that we have in the, the scriptures. We want ourselves to be pretty small in the whole equation. We want Jesus to be big. We want his name to be big. We want the gospel to be clear. We want to be given in love and in truth. But we're not to look to seek to be those whose stories are written about. If God does that in your life and through your life, praise God. Make sure you give all the glory to him. But that isn't the goal. You know, and, and that's what I think we, what we need to understand because John the Baptist didn't have the goal of he would have a great name. He was the messenger sent to go before him. By his in his obedience, he did become well known for in for a short period of time, and then it also came with this cost, because, as we know we're going to get there he gets his head chopped off, okay. But I think that one of the things that we have to get beyond is this idea that in the story, our name needs to make the front page. it doesn't. It doesn't. The name of Jesus needs to be lifted up and on high. And this is where we have to to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that we are just servants. We're the ones who have the Lord, yes, he loves his servants, but we're the one who the Lord has the authority to say, go or come or do this, or do that. And our response at each turn is to be, yes, Lord, as you will, it's my joy. That's where we may not be, but where we're trying to get to. That's we're trying to get to. Because in that, as servants, we want the name of, of Jesus, we want his name to be the one that is lifted on high. We want his name to be the one that is known, that is elevated. We're humans. We're made in the image of God. You're valuable enough that Jesus died for you. Isn't it enough to have our identity wrapped up in Christ's identity? Isn't it enough for our value to come, and the fact that you're so valuable that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Isn't that enough identity and enough value that you don't have to strive to live a life that would, for the, for the purpose of setting yourself above that, or that there would be other reasons why you would be viewed as valuable or important? You know, everybody's striving for, like, significance and importance and to have a name that is known and, you know, what do you want on your tombstone and all of this. And man, Our lives are important in Christ. They're enough. It's enough. Our names are enough in His name. But we don't have to have a name that's set out different from His name. You want to know the truth? My flesh hates that message. My flesh despises that message. It fights, you know, it wants to fight against it. It wants to hold on and to say, how are you going to set yourself apart to be recognized as important, as special? but the spirit that wars against the flesh fights back and says Jesus is enough his name is what matters sometimes in, in my generation there can be a frustration with generation younger with the unicorn mentality But let me say something to my generation. We've got some unicorn too. We've got some unicorn too. That's part of the flesh. Part of the, it's part of our. Nobody knows what I'm talking about? Okay, okay. A unicorn, obviously, you think of a unicorn, you think of super special, right? So people want to think of themselves as I'm fabulous, I'm super special. Check out my unicorn. Okay. And in generationally speaking, each generation has kind of its thing that it's known for. My generation is known for its angst, and we're going to fight against the man. Generation <laughs> X. Okay? That's what we're known for. Y'all's generation, those of you who are like college students, Generation Y, whatever, known for the unicorn mentality of I'm super special and, you know, that sort of thing. What I'm saying is, my generation also has some unicorn, because we all do, because that's a fleshly thing, but particularly those of you who are of that generation, you have to work a little bit hard against it, because your whole life, you've been taught, this is all about you, and you're super special, and you're awesome, and the truth is, you are valuable, and you are, God does love you, and you are cared about, but man, you really got to fight against your culture, against your generational culture so that the name of Jesus gets lifted on high. And so many times we betray ourselves in our speech, and the speech will reveal the unicorn in each one of us. It will. And so we got to fight against that and lift the name of Jesus on high. Get it? We got it? Okay, didn't want to speak cryptic, want to make sure everybody understands. Okay. Bottom line, Jesus is our authority and he's worthy to be followed. Simple as that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. Come to you this morning and we just want to say that your name is the name that ultimately matters, dear God. You are ultimate and supreme in this universe. You sent us, Your Son, Jesus, with authority and with such great authority, but yet, Jesus, You humbled Yourself with you such compassion for people. Lord, this morning, help us to grow in Your compassion. And You had such compassion on us that You went to the cross as your body and blood was sacrificed for us, and as we take the bread and the cup, representing those this morning, representing the cost and the sacrifice that you've made, we understand that you are you are the ultimate. You are the ultimate man, savior, king, everything. And so help us to submit our lives and ourselves before you. That we would be willing to say yes, dear Jesus, before you've even asked us a question. That our hearts would, that we would just live in a position, in a state of saying yes to you, Jesus. And I confess to you, Jesus, that in my flesh, I fight Against that, as my flesh wants my name to be lifted. But Jesus, as that centurion servant said, "Lord, we're not worthy." that you, Lord, we're not worthy that you would die for us. But we're not worthy that you would have anything to do with us, but yet you, you too, because you are so compassionate and so loving. And through your blood, you make us worthy. Help us to remember it's not of us, that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no changing or variation, that, God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that no matter what is going on in our world, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, Christ, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. that in your hands, God, we fear not because no one can touch our eternal spirits. No one can touch or harm the eternal part of us. It will live forever and ever in your presence. And so help us to live without fear of the earth, on this earth of any man, but only in reverence and respect to you, God.